Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back from lunch and free time. It can be nice to have free time. Mindfulness continues in our free time. So, um, just to say, it's really nice to to be with all of you and to, to practice together. And it feels like a real privilege for me. Um, just to, to be uh, to be in the the stream of of Dharma practice and Sangha and um, you know to be in, invited here and to become a part of True North is such a, a, a lovely gift in my life. Um, Daryl has heard me say this many times. I I love Canadians. Um, I, don't, I don't mean to be overly sort of preferential, but um, it's true. And um, just this, uh, it's a lot of beauty to Canadian culture. So um, I'm feeling very welcome here. So thank you for that. Um, So today, uh, this afternoon, I'd like to talk about, since the theme of our retreat is on relationship, I'd like to talk about the, uh, the Dharma of Relating, or another way, how do we how do we use our Dharma practice to to relate and to relate to ourselves as well as others and to the world? I mean, this is this is a rather large question, um, and uh, uh, I feel a very pertinent one. So we've been having instructions uh, yesterday and today. Daryl spoke more about uh, how we can relate to our own mind and heart. You know, in these these uh, these teachings really have been passed down, as many of you know, for you know several thousand over almost you know twenty six hundred years. So I, I often find it's quite um, astonishing and inspiring to think about our humanity in that way. That these teachings passed down from another culture, an Asian culture, um, many many years ago, are so uh, relatable and so usable um, in. This you know modern day Western culture in my life, I certainly have found a, uh, the Dharma teachers. I started practicing Buddhist meditation when I was in my twenties, so it's, it's been well over thirty years. Just just such a profound um, gift and rudder in my life, really like foundation in my life, in my in my work life, in my. Uh, relationships and my um, just understanding life itself. So uh, I feel so happy that um, when other people are exploring this path, just just in a very selfish way because of how much it's really uh, benefited myself. Um, and I believe probably... Uh, the people that are in my life get some benefit from my dharma practice. I hope so. Maybe not always, but it feels like uh, it certainly helped me in my my relationships. So that's uh, part of what I'd like to speak about. So just to review briefly, uh, one of the things that we are learning here in our formal meditation practice um, Mindfulness of the body. So, and, then, and the Buddha taught, you know, this as the first, as Daryl said, the first practice, uh, the first foundation of mindfulness. And uh, 
And as I said yesterday in, uh, in the in, um, morning instructions, it is <clears throat> the, the thing about practicing mindfulness of the body is it's so tangible. I mean, it's really, we're so often, you know, in our heads. Uh, so when you, you actually come back into your body, you know, you can feel sensation, right? You can, you can feel the breath. You can feel even the elements of heat and coolness and, and air and movement. Um, so, you know, what he said about these foundations of mindfulness, calling them foundations, because through the clear and direct and wholehearted uh, practice of any one of them, we can come to full awakening, to to peace in our minds and hearts if we want to understand what, what do we mean by full awakening, complete peace. So that's pretty... It's a pretty uh, profound uh, invitation, I think. Um, so no wonder sometimes that we're daunted when we hear these these great teachings, and we can sit on a retreat and practice, and you know, just we were here like a day and a half so far, and um, sharing last night in the group. I, I, I was feeling so inspired by listening to. Uh, you know, what's arising for, for people in terms of understanding and insight and a sense of compassion and, um, yeah, and, and insight, wisdom into one's experience. Just, just from, that wasn't even, that was just about a full day of practice. So that's, that's a pretty inspiring um, support to continue our practice. So one of the things we learned, you know, mindfulness of the body, and then this morning, I don't, you know, I'm sure you've been exploring what Daryl spoke about, mindfulness of feeling, Vedna, you know, noticing what happens when unpleasant arises in the mind, noticing what happens when pleasant arises. You know, what are our habitual tendencies around that? These are the things the Buddha talked about um, in the Four Noble Truths, this basic teaching. And I think the beauty of sitting on a retreat is that we really have this time and space to investigate. And that's no small thing. It's no small thing to take that time in one's life, to give that to oneself, to you know, travel, to be in a retreat, to find teachers that are uh, useful to you in your practice, you know, and to make that commitment to, to just practice. I mean, you know, you know what it's like in your mind when... You're like, hey, I'm going to go on retreat. This is really great. I'm so looking forward to it. And then, you know, you're into like two sittings. Like, oh, I want to get out of here. <laughs> I have so much to do. This really isn't what I thought it was going to be. Um, that's a great one. This really isn't what I thought it was going to be. Um, life isn't exactly what we think it's going to be. But again, just taking this, making this commitment to be... Uh, to, to steady oneself, to begin again, to come back, to come back to that step in the walking, to come, come back to the breath and sitting, to just staying with the form of practice. It takes uh, a lot, doesn't it? I mean, it's like kind of a simple, you know, if you showed someone, look, here's a schedule, be like, ah, oh, that looks easy. You know, try it. <laughs> you know, it looks easy, and yet we know it takes this perseverance and, and this, and this you know, qualities of patience, right? And, you know, the thing the Buddha talked about so much that I really appreciate is, you know, he talked about the middle way. So it's really, 
working with balance, isn't it? You know, you know, you know when you're kind of like striving. I mean, when I first started my practice, I was. I mean, Theravadan can lead to this too, um, but you know, kind of really striving, really wanting to, wanting freedom. Notice the fist, you know, and just you know, really at some point, my practice realizing that was that was, it was out of balance. You know, I might have gotten some, you know, strong concentration or whatever, but then I would leave retreat and feel completely thrown, you know, by the by just having to drive my car or, you know, relate to another person and be sometimes shocked that all these qualities that I'd been cultivating weren't exactly at ready hand, you know. Some were. It's not to be discouraging. But, you know, it's like... When I think of relating, I think of it, you know, in terms of Dharma practice, I think it's like where the rubber meets the road. You know, that um, we can have these beautiful aspirations on retreat. Again, I'm not suggesting this to be discouraging. I mean, our intention to wake up is very... The Buddha talked about intention as being very, very powerful energy. You know, it's what gets us on retreat, right? it's It's what might be behind... You know, okay, I'm going to do some loving kindness practice. It's like that intention to open our hearts. You know, we may not get the immediate results we want from it, but as a teacher of mine, Sharon Salzberg said, um, 30 or so years ago, when she first started teaching the the loving kindness retreat, we do a whole retreat with loving kindness practice. She would just say, like, don't don't measure your practice. Don't don't decide that okay it's, well, my heart's closed I don't feel anything what's wrong just keep doing the practice and you know and, and and see what unfolds you know and sure enough you feel this you know heart opening sometimes when you least expect it when you you know when you're peeling an orange or when you're seeing uh, a person walk by and somehow you just see their humanity and your heart just explodes. You know, we can't we can't manufacture that. Like that's what's going to happen next. Now my heart's going to explode. You know, now now I'm going to open. You know, now now wisdom is going to come. You know, why why isn't it coming? I did the sitting and walking and sitting and walking. You know, it's it's not like that. You know, it's conditions are always changing, and yet it does require this perseverance and this this faith. I mean, in Buddhist practice, of faith is called verified faith, where faith doesn't come from a <clears throat> you know, a belief in the external. It comes from one's direct experience. Your faith gets gets strengthened or inspired when you actually check out some of these um, suggestions or teachings. See, well, how, okay, let me try that out. Let me see, how does that really, how does that really relate? And so you practice and you see, and that's really what increases one's sense of, of faith and perseverance and um, interest because you see the results uh, and they just unfold. I was just saying to Daryl and um, Janet at lunch, it's so beautiful. I was noticed this last night in the group that, you know, we set these conditions, you know, we you know, set up the room or thanks to Janet, we wouldn't have the retrieval, it wasn't for Janet. Um, you know, and so here are all the conditions, we offer some of the teachings and then and then it just unfolds, you know, like it, you receive whatever you receive, you practice, and then just hearing this unfolding when people speak is so um, inspiring to me. Um, because it's, 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 it's really, wow, this, this, this is happening. This is, there really is um, a way to freedom. There really is a way to peace. And 
sometimes we know that more when we hear another speak. Sometimes it's harder to know it in ourselves. That's kind of interesting. So we practice here mindfulness of feeling. We, we notice, hopefully you notice what, what happens when feeling is unpleasant. We tend to tighten and resist and try to avoid. When feelings are pleasant, we find ourselves, you know, Prevailing in the feelings or wanting more of it, you know, whether it's, you know, a second piece of cake. I did save a piece of that gingerbread. It was very good. Um, you know, or we want that special walk that we had yesterday that was just so beautiful. And we go back to the same place and we do the same walking and somehow it's just not the same. And there's another teaching in there about impermanence, you know, and about grasping, that we want to feel this, this pleasure um, it's natural to want to feel pleasure. It's not to judge oneself. It's to notice it. That's what mindfulness practice is, is to notice. We notice it. And then wisdom starts to arise because what we notice is that um, if we if we get so attached to pleasant, ironically, we're going to suffer. It's going to lead to unpleasant. Because why? Because things aren't permanent. They don't They don't stay the same. So even if these conditions are, are the same, the results may be different on another day. And, uh, and that's part of the vulnerability of being alive, isn't it? So, so we practice on retreat, and what we start to notice is, you know, the body settles a bit more. Now, I'm not suggesting, you know, I'm not trying to romanticize it. The body may be settling more, and you, still, you may be feeling a lot of pain. If you have certain conditions in the body, we notice... Um, unpleasant a lot more. Sometimes things can feel very intense in your body. Sometimes things can feel very intense in the heart. You know, sometimes memories come up or unresolved issues come up. So it's not it's not a bliss trip sitting on retreat. It's not a bliss trip. And it can feel very <coughs> challenging. At the same time, we can also notice our capacity. Daryl talked about this earlier this morning. Our capacity to be with really strengthens. It's through these repetitive practices, if, if you will, and the simplification, you know, coming back to the breath, being with one step, slowing down, pausing, just this moment, this, this continued practice of uh, simplifying, being the present moment, starts to strengthen, uh, both strengthen the awareness and strengthens the heart-mind's capacity to be with what is. Because we start to notice that we tend to run away from what we don't like. We tend to strategize away from it. So we begin to notice this on retreat. And it, it can, as I said, it can build one's, one's confidence and one's faith and start to you know, feel, feel uh, a little better maybe, a little more confident or, or maybe just a little more capable of just being in the moment. And that feels, that can feel pretty good. Now, if you're sitting here right now listening to me and saying, you know, like, I do not feel good. In this moment, I actually do not feel good. See if you can notice, and are you able to be with that? Generally speaking, that's, that's one of the fruits of doing formal meditation practice, is that we, we have that, we, we cultivate and strengthen that capacity to be with. And so the being with, that sense of well-being, isn't dependent on whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. It really, you start to notice that it's actually not dependent on that. Now, why else would we, would we be able to tell stories about ourselves in the small group and kind of laugh at them? Like, oh, when I got here, 
I hated everything, you know, or nothing was right. And then, you know, the person laughs and everybody laughs. Well, we laugh because we can just see the mind that way. It's no longer being clung to. It doesn't have to be any other way than how it is, even if it's unpleasant. So I know for myself, um, you know, really appreciating, as I said, this this practice, the opportunity to practice, the opportunity, uh, just in my life, just karmically, I've been able to um, to do a lot of intensive retreat practice, and as I said, just just beautiful gift from that. But what I do notice is that leaving retreat, sometimes I'd be on retreat and imagining being off retreat and kind of imagining like how all these beautiful qualities are going to just transpire into my daily life. Anyone have that experience on retreat? <laughs> you know, and you feel like, you feel, talk about confidence, you feel pretty confident, like it's definitely going to be better. <laughs> and um, in some ways, I mean, if I look at the sort of the long stretch, you know, from like te- teens to now, I mean, I don't really have another life that I'm conscious of to compare it to, but um, I do sometimes shudder at the thought of thinking not not having Dharma practice. Like I have no idea what my life would be like. It just feels like it would be an emotional hell realm. Um, but anyway, you know, getting ready to 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 go home with this new inspiration, and then you know, finding you know, sometimes being feeling dismayed or shocked even. One time I was coming off a, it was a, it was a loving-kindness retreat, and I was in traffic um, in the town that I live in. It's not even, it's a city, but it's, it's small. And it was a, a little side street, and there was a truck that was, like, idling in the middle of the street. No way you could go around it. And just, you know, seven days, loving-kindness practice. I'm sitting there just so impatient. It was just like, come on! You know, move, and uh, you know that I'm sure experience traffic issues. Some of my favorite Dharma stories are traffic stories, um, driving stories. But at any rate, uh, I was kind of shocked to see that arise in myself. And what happened is, you know, the mind starts to judge, like, oh, it shouldn't be like this. I just got off this retreat. It shouldn't be this way. A lot of selfing around it. And uh, you know, in some ways, it was just a kind of a delusion really not seeing that, you know, these conditions of open-heartedness and closed-heartedness, they come and go. Um, and they're, in their, you know, the, certainly the, the conditions of a closed heart are, are deeply conditioned. They're deeply conditioned culturally, you know, personally, familiarly. Uh, what helped me in that situation uh, that opened my heart again was that I saw someone else who looked very patient and kind. They weren't on the retreat, by the way. Um, that was just very, uh, they seemed very kind in the way they were waiting for the person to, you know, move along in the car. And I thought, wow. And that opened my heart. You know, so there's, there's still hope. <laughs> I was able to feel a joy in um, experience, experiencing that, uh, that person's patience. So, like it or not, we are relational creatures, aren't we? <laughs> we are. Uh, you know, and that's true whether we're in intimate partnerships or whether we're parents or not parents or we have siblings, friends, uh, bosses, colleagues, patients, clients, uh, therapists, doctors, students, teachers, you name it. We have relational... We live in a relational world. And... Uh, 
again, that is that seems to be where the rubber meets the road. Like, how do we bring these practices into our relationship, into our relationships? And it can be discouraging at times. So I thought today we could just talk about what are some are, what are some of the practices that we can bring, you know, that, that can help us in our relationships. And that was the whole theme, really, of, of Daryl and I doing this retreat, that uh, to really do, to, to do a retreat that had more of a, that had an integrative quality within it around relating. You know, and some of you may have noticed there was resistance, you know, a lot of resistance yesterday to doing a practice that involves relating. I mean, if I were on a silent retreat and I was asked to do a relating practice, I'd probably feel resistance. And I'm an extrovert, so I can only imagine what introverts feel like. But um, it was interesting to get people's feedback. It sounds like it was it was meaningful for a lot of you. You know, We can't avoid relating. And I was coming here on the plane... Um, there was a little girl, uh, a tri- it was a small a small plane, and she was at a diagonal from me. She, I found out later from her mother, she was 16 months old. Her name is Adeline. And Adeline was one of the most relational beings I've ever met. She had curly blonde hair. She had a little pink bow in her hair that matched the pink collar on her dress. And she just wanted to engage. She's looking at me, showing me things, you know. None of it was with words, really. Oh, I said a few words um, to her, um, but not much. It was just this contact. And at one point, her mother said, you know, you can just ignore her. As a mother would, she was trying to take care of my space. But I, I wanted to say, are you kidding? This is so compelling. I, it was just so compelling because she was so trusting. She was so open. I mean, to watch that little body... And that face and those eyes and that desire to connect and, you know, showing me. She kept, you know, the, the little thing, the tray that you put up. And her mother was so patient. She kept opening the tray and taking a Kleenex and wiping off the tray. And then she'd put it back up. And as soon as her mother locked the tray, she'd unlock it again and wipe the tray. And then she'd do it again. And then she'd look at me and wipe the tray, you know. And uh, just that, you know, it was such a joy to watch her. Like, she's learning. She's mirroring. And her mother was just so um, lovely with her. At one point, her mother had her mother had long hair. She just flipped her hair like that. And you could hear the two of them giggle. And, you know, she was just, like, laughing and playing in her mother's hair. So, I mean, I just had such delight um, experiencing her. And it was very poignant because, you know, watching this little being, I found myself starting to do, just organically starting to do a metta practice for her. And the first thing that came out of my mind, words in my mind, was, may you be safe. You know, here's this, this being is only on the planet for 16 months, and she has a life ahead of her that who knows what that's going to be like. Who knows? We all know it's going to be full of joys and sorrows, and, and we all know that even though there was that beautiful exchange between mother and daughter, there are going to be many moments between the two of them that are not going to feel beautiful, you know, to either one of them, because that's the nature of humanity. And at even some point, even though I was really enjoying her, I thought, well, yeah, it was nice the mother said you can ignore her, because at one point I did want to go back to, you know, to my reading and just noticing that shift back and forth. I was really compelled, though, um, by Adeline and her trust. 
So, you know, when, when I think of, of our humanity and being alive, is we really do rely on belonging, a sense of belonging. No matter what our temperament is, no matter what our circumstances are, we, it, it's part of what sustains, it's part of what keeps us alive. I mean, you know, we're sitting in here practicing, and they're the cooks that are making this delicious food for us every day. You know, we're, we are relying on their, their generosity and their creativity and their care. I mean, this is our world. This is, it's, you know, we don't grow up and become adults and all of a sudden not need other people. Except it's, I find, I don't know if it's true in Canadian culture, but I find in U.S. culture, you know, there's so much, um, I think it's probably true of a lot of Western culture, really, but there's so much um, emphasis on individualism and, you know, capitalism and competition and, you know, success is measured by competing, really, with another. And that's, like, deeply conditioned, you know, in our beings, isn't it? I see a lot of you nodding. You know, it's painful, isn't it? I just find it's, like, so, it's so painful that, you know, we have to be against someone to, to quote, succeed, you know? Or, or um, I don't know if it happens up here, but, you know, a lot of, you know, when you meet people, it's like the conditioned response after you hear their name is, oh, what do you do? You know, like, what's your identity? Like, what do you do for work? You know, um... So this sense of belonging, we can lose. We can lose sense of it. You know, we can we can be culturally conditioned to, to really not reflect on it, uh, in you know in our world. Um, it is painful because it's it's painful because it's 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 denial, isn't it? It's denial of the truth of our interconnectedness. That's why it's painful. And it can feel so isolating. Hmm. And when, you know, some of that pain can come from our early life, too, that we carry with us. Uh, John, John Wellwood, who's a, a Dharma practitioner and a therapist, um, he, he writes, it's, it's important to recognize that all the emotional and psychological wounding we carry with us from the past is relational in nature. It has to do with not feeling fully loved. And it happened often in our earliest relationships with our caretakers, when our brain and body were totally soft and impressionable. So, you know, we could call this sort of, you know, in Buddhist psychology language, we could say, well, this is karma. Like, how, how do we deal with our karma? Like, particularly if maybe we, we, um, maybe we were born into conditions where we weren't treated the way Adelaide was treated. You know, maybe we were born to conditions where whatever circumstances our parent or caregivers had um, in their own lives, uh, you know, mental health issues or, or addictions or uh, problems with anger or whatever, where, where if those weren't attended to and healed, they would be passed on. And then when we receive that, you know, part of when we talk about relationship is how do we relate to ourselves in relationship to those messages, whether they're spoken, behavioral, or unspoken. You know, we, we learn to reject ourselves in so many ways. So that's why, you know, we do these loving-kindness practices, and that's why often for people they'll say it's really um, difficult to offer loving-kindness to oneself. I don't know if any of you experience that or not, but I often hear uh, 
Dharma practitioners say that, that it's, it's hard to do that. And yet, sometimes it's easier to think of someone who, who we know loves us, to think of their feeling about us, you know, or look, see their love in their eyes, whether it's a grandparent or teacher or a good friend, you know, where sometimes another can be much more accepting of us than we can of ourselves. Stephen Levine, um, who's now since passed away in early, I say early meaning in the 70s, he uh, started teaching Dharma. He said, you know, why do our families push our buttons? Because they installed them. (laughs) (laughs) I love that question. (laughs) John Wellwood also talked about... um, you know how we can how we can apply our, our practice to relationship. He he quoted uh, Chogyam Rinpoche who said we, we can we go to the, we can go to the charnel ground. You know so in so in uh, these tantric practices um, in the East, you know the um, lamas and, and uh, spiritual leaders would would tell along with themselves. Um, Ajahn Chah did this too. He'd go and do cemetery contemplations, or you would go to the charnel ground. And that's where you do your practice. So the charnel grounds are where people just bring bodies, dead bodies, for the vultures to come and you know eat the bodies. So you see, you know, body parts all over the place. And and um, in Trigyam Rinpoche describes it as such. You can find it. It's a place to die and be born equally at the same time. It's simply our raw and rugged nature, the ground where we constantly puke and fall down, constantly make a mess. We are constantly dying. We are constantly giving birth. We are eating in the charnel ground, sitting in it, sleeping on it, having nightmares on it. He says, The chaos that takes place in your neurosis is the only home ground that you can build the mandala of awakening on. So the point here is we can't avoid the messiness of life. And I think sometimes we can almost want to use spiritual practice as a way to bypass it. Like if I just noted away, like that's anger, that's anger, that's anger, noting, 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 or just it's all empty, it's all empty, so it doesn't really matter. You know, it's, it's kind of a bypassing because in reality, you know, we feel we're impacted by each other. And we, we, we're impacted by how we're treated, we're impacted by how we treat other people. Trungpa Rinpoche says, there are large areas of our life that have been devoted to trying to avoid discovering our own experience. Now, in the charnel ground in our relationships, we have a chance to explore that large area which exists in our being, which we've been trying to avoid. says that that might seem very grim, but it's also very exciting. What is happening on the Charnel ground is constant personal exploration and beyond that, just giving, opening, extending yourself completely to a situation that's available to you, being fantastically exposed in a sense that you could give birth to another world. So what does he mean by this? Another teacher, Swami Rudrananda, he's German, he's also known as Rudy. I like the name Rudy. The only thing that can create a oneness inside you, think of this idea of we are one, is the ability to see more of yourself as you work every day to open deeper and say, fine, I'm short-tempered, or fine, 
I'm aggressive. Fine, I love to make money. Or I have no feeling for anybody else. Once you recognize you're all of these things, you'll finally be able to take a breath and allow these things to open. John Wellwood says, Sooner or later, relationships bring us to our knees, forcing us to confront the raw and rugged mess of our mental and emotional life. So, you I mean, this may seem kind of depressing. I, I think it's actually, I find it very liberating. Because myself, to be honest with you, and of course that is the whole point, is to be honest with you, um, I, I have had many moments of shame in my practice over the years when I find myself caught you know, in some aversive situation. Always it's in relationship, you know, and I'm like mad at the other person. Or what, what it usually is is I'm mad at myself for being mad. And then the little Buddhist police will come up. You know, it's just like, you know, shouldn't be angry. Look at how many years of practice you've done. My goodness, you, you know, you, you're a therapist and you teach Buddhist meditation and, you know, you're, you're still, you know, you're, you're in this place of anger. Or, and it's, it's like, it's so diluted, that thought. You know, it's so deluded. It's, it's actually so arrogant. Like to somehow think that, you know, from all these years of practice, you know, it's just going to disappear. And really what has shifted is being able to see that and say that to you. And really say it with some compassion for the pain. Because it's such suffering that we, we can do real trips on ourselves. And it really is a kind of avoidance. It's not conscious. But it's scary to come right up against that raw pain of hurt, disappointment, judgment of ourselves or another person. It takes real courage to open to it, doesn't it? I mean, and it takes patience. And it takes spiritual friends to remind us it's okay. You you can do this. Or, you know, you're not a bad person. You know, and, and then... At least that, that gives us some foundation to then move into the relationship with, with a, a, a more connected sense of um, self and other. You know, part of what gets us into trouble is we want other people to be a certain way. We want ourselves to be a certain way, and we want other people to be a certain way. And guess what? You know, they're not. Right? <laughs> Or maybe some of you have relationships where they're always the way you want them to be. <laughs> uh, I haven't experienced that. So, you know, so... Uh, so here's some of the things that have helped me with practice around this. One, um, there's lots of anachronisms. This is one is from a friend of mine, um, Marv Belzer. I'm going to do some, a little bit more tonight of some of um, his... Uh, loving-kindness practice. So he uses the acronym STOP. STOP. So S, stop. You know, that's one thing. You never notice within an email, you know, if you're writing an email and you, you know, upset with someone, you want to make a point, you know, and then a little part of you says, mm, I don't know about this. That's a really good time to stop. Or at least, at least put it in your draft file. Maybe review it again later. You know, or sometimes you know we want we we might stop in the middle of something. Just just notice how we're feeling in our bodies. What's happening? So the second part is take a few breaths. Stop. T. Take a few breaths. 
oh, observe, just the way, just the instructions we were getting today, observe our body, what's happening in the body. You know, oftentimes if I'm upset with someone, there'll be like a tightness, you know, or feel like my breath is, um, is contracted. What are the feelings? Mm-hmm. Maybe the first to notice, what's the Vedana? Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neutral? So noticing the unpleasant. And then to notice the thoughts. Because as Daryl was saying today, that you know what can come out of pleasant, unpleasant are a barrage of thoughts, and vice versa. It can be like a feedback loop. So let's just say the feeling is unpleasant. And before we know it, the thoughts are, this person is this, this person is that. They did this to me. This, and, and we believe the thoughts as if that's all they are. We might see them weeks later, say a family member, and there's that projection. And when we don't realize the projection is happening, we believe the thoughts, and we're off and running. You know, I had a great experience of this um, when uh, this teaching, when I was on a retreat, a long retreat at IMS once, and there was a gentleman, um, there's, there's, you know, there's 90, 100 uh, yogis that practice together on retreats there often. And so these dining, kind of squished on these dining tables. Um, and this gentleman was sitting across from me. And we both seemed to like to take a long time with our eating meditation. But he had this way of like chewing like that and he also was tall so he had these long legs so the combination of his chewing and his legs getting in my way um, led to me hating him (laughs) right just like such aversion and you know just Mm, like and just you know, he does, he's not even aware of his feet, and where, he's not even aware of the sound he's making. He was thoroughly enjoying his meal too, and uh, and maybe the next day, this might have happened more than once. Like I said, long And then one day he was walking through a doorway, and I was walking the other way, and I started. To, I could feel that I don't like him, and all of a sudden my mind went like. And my heart just burst open. It just burst open. I can, I can feel it as I'm telling you about it. It was like, it shifted from this I hate him to, oh my, I love him. You know, I love him because he's been this object of this enormous teaching around um, projection and not seeing thought. And you know, this can happen all the time. It just became so apparent because I was on retreat. I mean, I never got to meet him. He never knew that story. And yet, what an incredible... I, this was many years ago. I can't tell you how many times I've told this story in Dharma Talks because it's so profound for me. It was such a profound experience of seeing uh, aversion and projection and how that can take the mind off and running. And we have more fodder for people we know because we're in interactions with them. It might be harder to loosen up that grip, but it's not impossible if we slow down we pay attention. And it's not impossible if we let ourselves lean into knowing what we feel. And this, I think, is the big challenge in Western culture. You know, some of you may know Brene Brown. Are you familiar with her work? She talks a lot about vulnerability and shame. I think that that it's so counterculture to feel vulnerable to really feel the vulnerability of any kind of affect, but certainly affect where we feel loneliness, where we feel sorrow, where we feel hurt, 
disappointed, you know, and so we, we can kind of build up these walls to, to feeling those feelings. And really what happens by avoiding feeling the feeling in the feeling, we're off in the thought, we're off in this sense of separation. And a lot of times it will be go, go into, I'm right, they're wrong. Or it'll flip. They're right, I'm wrong. Either way, there's this sense of separation. There's this lack of capacity to really be with the, vul- the truth of life. The truth of life is vulnerable. It's beautiful, but it's also vulnerable. It's changing like that. Right? It's changing so fast we can't, we can't even track it. But when we can start to say yes to, okay, I'm just going to stop. I'm just going to open. I'm just going to feel this, even if it's unpleasant. That is radical. You know, that is radical practice. In my book, that's radical politics, too. It's, 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 it's got the capacity to change the world. Because if some of our world leaders had that capacity to stop, to listen, to pay attention, to feel, to understand we are so intricately interconnected no matter what our race is, our religion, you know, our social class, our country, our culture, you know, our physical abilities or not, our mental abilities or not, we are human beings. And when we can see that, it becomes very, very difficult to cause another harm. We become more sensitized to that. We become more sensitized to the power of speech, to the power of our actions, and we do the best we can. I mean, I find I just apologize more, you know, not because I think I'm a bad person, but because, you know, I may have misstepped there. I may have misstepped there, and I, I want to, I want to recognize that in myself. And I want to, re- I want to, I want to offer that to the other person. I find that doing a lot of work around, um, a lot of investigation around being white and uh, looking, looking at white privilege. It's just, a, you know, things that I may not have been aware of, things that I might say to another, not, not in any, like, blatant, overt way, but that might, that might be offensive. And just being willing to, like, check into that, you know, being willing to be human, being willing to, to, uh, to make a mistake, because if we're not willing to make a mistake or investigate our experience, then we're going to keep this self and other going, out of fear, even. So we just feel the fear. Just feel the fear. Fear's not going to kill us. practice here, but we, but we don't have time for it. Um, let's see. I'll read the one, a couple things I want to read to you. This is from um, Chuang Tzu, the Zen Sage. Many of you might be familiar with this. It's called the empty boat. If a man is crossing a river, or a woman, or gender nonconforming person, um, is crossing a river, and an empty boat collides with their own skiff, 
even though she may be a bad-tempered person, she will not become very angry. But if she sees a man in the boat, he will shout at him. She will shout at him to steer clear. If the shout is not heard, she will shout again and yet again and begin cursing, and all because there is somebody in the boat. Yet, if the boat were empty, she would not be shouting. I'm not angry. If you can empty your own boat crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you. No one will seek to harm you. So this is this tall order. It's so poignant, isn't it? I mean, can't you picture yourself that? I mean, if you see an empty boat and it's going to collide with your boat, you're probably not going to get pissed off at the boat. Um, But if you think there's another person there, they're they're all of a sudden, they're they're doing this and they're doing that. You know, we presume that we have so much control in life. We really don't. Another practice I like to remind myself of is uh, what the Buddha talked about in relationship to anger. That, you know, he talked to use the uh, image of like holding on to anger is holding on is like holding on to a burning coal. It's such a powerful metaphor, isn't it? And how, you know, it's 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 humbling because I certainly can imagine situations where you know it's very hard to let go of anger. Like, what is that? Somebody asked that question earlier today. Like, why do we go to these thoughts? You know, and Daryl was saying, you know, this this reification of self. You know, it's it really has to do with this this yes this identity of self. You know, he hurt me, he did this to me, he did that to me, she did this to me, she did that to me. And even if those things happened, you know, they're, they're, they're not happening now. They're not happening in the moment. And, and, you know, one of the ways we can practice with that is, well, let's reflect on that person's good qualities. Because, you know, what happens, we start to see the person just that way and not other aspects of them. And we can do the same thing with ourselves. We're upset with ourselves for failing at something, a perceived failure. So we might need to reflect on our own good qualities to help balance that out. When Ajahn Sumedho was asked um, by one of um, the monastics when they were leaving the monastery to go visit their family, I think they were like a new... Uh, monk or nun, you know, how should I handle, you know, speaking with my family? And he said, don't create them. Don't create them. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a powerful practice, isn't it? Don't create them. I think the... Um, Last thing I want to share with you about one of the ways, and this has been, you know, uh, pretty um, a pretty strong practice for me lately. Uh, my, I have uh, my mother's ninety-two years old, and um, she's mostly for ninety-two. She's she's still got some some good health, although she's she's definitely more. Um, uh, she's not necessarily physically homebound, but she's having short-term memory loss. She's just more vulnerable. And so it's been a practice for me. I lost my dad a couple of years ago. And uh, to to really 
um, relate to her and relate to aging and, and um, you know, getting closer to, to death um, as I see, you know, her vulnerability um, continue to ripen, so to speak, as she ages. And I am, I've been recently dreaming about her dying. I mean, she's not, she's not, uh, she doesn't have a, a life-threatening illness, but, but they're, they're, they're coming, it's coming up in my dreams. And um, I think a lot in terms of these discussions I'm having with you today about relating um, to others, and I have focused on a negative aspect because I, I think that's a place where we can tend to get pretty stuck. You can get stuck on the positive feelings too, but it tends to seem, seems like the negative tend to be stickier. Maybe because we just want things to be positive. But at any rate, um, the practice I've, ta- I've taken or just has come organically is to really reflect on that we're all going to die. So um, when I, you know, when I encounter another that I might be having difficulty with, and I can feel the stickiness of it, like maybe after the situation, you know, or just or if it's say with my spouse, my my wife, we've been together. 37 years and you know there are times things can feel you know not pleasant um, I mean it's not generally the case but when it does you know that kind of stickiness of um, not wanting it to be that way and, and a little bit of noticing how you know, there's kind of a little sense of righteousness of wanting it to be the way I think it should be and, uh, and then I'll just look at her it's like you know she's going to die you know, and I'm going to die. And I this I use this reflection a lot. Sometimes even with people on the street when I'm walking, just whoa, we're all going to die here. You know, and it, it may sound a little morbid, but it's actually quite heart opening for me. And uh, so that's another practice I just just offer you if you, you know, it's kind of a way to wake up the mind and heart, reflect on death. So I'll end with um, a poem by a woman named Ellen Bass that speaks to this. It's called If You Knew. What if you knew you'd be the last to touch someone? If you were taking tickets, for example, at the theater, tearing them, giving them back, giving back the ragged stubs. You might take care to touch that palm, brush your fingertips along the lifeline's crease. When a man pulls his wheeled suitcase too slowly through the airport, when the car in front of me doesn't signal, when the clerk at the pharmacy won't say thank you, I don't remember they're going to die. A friend told me she'd been with her aunt. They'd just had lunch, and the waiter, a young gay man with plum black eyes, joked as he served the coffee, kissed her aunt's powdered cheek when they left. Then they walked half a block, and her aunt dropped dead on the sidewalk. How close does the dragon's spume have to come? How wide does the crack in heaven have to split? What would people look like if we could see them as they are? Soaked in honey, 
stung and swollen, reckless, pinned against time. What would we look like if we could see ourselves as we are, soaked in honey, stung and swollen, reckless, pinned against time? Perhaps that what would be left if we could see ourselves in each other that way, perhaps what would be left is love. I guess we'll just have to investigate that, won't we? Thank you. Thank you for listening. And, uh, let's just take one moment to um, just be silent together, and then we'll go into our walking. the efforts of our practice here together serve to benefit not only ourselves but all beings known and unknown here and beyond. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.